Um, I'm, not sh I'm not sure whether I stand now in fear and trepidation after Steve's build-up this morning. But anyway, we're in Luke's Gospel and um, chapter 14. <coughs> and um, as we've been... And by the way, verse 25, yeah, start with. But as we've been working our way through this Gospel, it's like going on a journey with Jesus, isn't it? Through the life of Jesus, we've seen... God's compassion for a lost world through concern for the poor, healing the sick, casting out evil spirits and setting people free. A living demonstration of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God had come to earth in the person of Jesus. On the other hand, we hear his harsh words for the religious leaders of the day who had confused the people with a multitude of petty rules and regulations and who had opposed his ministry. He called them hypocrites, didn't he? Blind guides. And if we had been there, I think we would have cheered him from the sidelines. Yeah, Jesus, sock it to them. Yeah. But what about those who would follow him? Uh, he tells us that his heart was gentle and lowly for those who would come to him. But he does not mince his words when he spells out the cost of following him. That's what we call discipleship, isn't it? A, a living out of his life in our world. Jesus' call to discipleship has been summed up with the phrase, come as you are, but don't expect to stay as you are. Salvation is free, but discipleship very costly. But however costly, we pursue it within the security of our salvation. When we receive Jesus as Lord and Saviour, God puts our sin to his account, which was paid for on the cross. And he puts his righteousness to our account. We are what the Bible calls justified. We are justified in God's sight. We are declared righteous in God's sight. It is a gift of God by his mighty grace and love. And no amount of stumbling and bungling and even willful sin can unsave us. God's amazing grace is sufficient for all our weakness and waywardness. But this should not make us complacent because God's grace is not given that we may live as we please but given to set us free from sin's reign over us, enabling us to say no to sin and be obedient to Jesus' claims on our lives. Back in chapter 9, we already have a, challenge, a challenging call to take up our cross and deny ourselves. Now in chapter 14, this call to take up our cross or to bear our cross is repeated with even more severe implications. Although Jesus' teaching was often focused on his disciples, we know that very large crowds followed him. We get an idea of this, how large the crowds were um, at the occasion of the feeding of the 5,000. It said there were 5,000 men apart from women and children. So that number could have been doubled, huge numbers. Jesus was clearly the star attraction for many uh, who had mundane, boring lives and they would have flocked to be present when Jesus came to town. While some of these people would have been severe, uh, sincere seekers after truth, there would undoubtedly have been those who were there for the spectacle, for the ride, 
hoping that some of the God magic would rub off on them. And, uh, and so Jesus uh, had at times to be radical, even seemingly offensive, in order to separate the sheep from the goats, the genuine seekers from the hangers-on. And this is what we find in our passage today. The sign over today's, today's message is, don't join if you haven't counted the cost. I don't know about you, but I find it a little bit annoying if I buy, go to buy something online and I get to the point of completing the transaction and it says, tick the box to indicate that you've read all the terms and conditions. All familiar with that? How many of you read the terms and conditions? Oh, some are, some are nodding. I've, I've read them occasionally, but sometimes they're just pages long. And I'm, I'm afraid very often I think, oh, it's probably all right, I'll just tick it. Jesus says, don't join if you haven't read the terms and conditions. All right? uh, you remember at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, he tells us how he came to write it. He says he took eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus from those who were there with Jesus and put them together in an orderly way. I can imagine that if I were Luke, looking through these accounts, possibly written down for him, I would put the one containing our passage today at the bottom of the pile, hoping it would go away. So you'll understand what I mean and I read it. So we'll read Luke 14, 25 to 35. <clears throat> Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus, I'm sure you see, is in effect is saying, uh, to really follow me could cost you everything. And I think the word could is maybe helpful as we look at this because it's a clue to understanding this passage because it's about a heart attitude and potential. And the key is found in verse 33. That will come up. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We'll just look at this word, renounce, for a moment. First of all, let's consider what Jesus is not saying. He's not calling us as his disciples 
to give up all worldly possessions and break off family and other relationships. He's not calling us to become paupers. Uh, We see in the Gospels how Jesus benefited from the home of Martha and Mary. We don't hear him chastise them for having furniture and pots and pans. Uh, In the Acts of the Apostles and the letters, we read of churches that met in homes, presumably homes of wealthy Christians, but they were homes and possessions that were available to Jesus, which may help us understand the word renounce. Uh, It'll come up on the screen. My Oxford Dictionary gives the following meanings. Consent formally to abandon, surrender. Give up a claim or right of possession. If we renounce all that we have, it means that we do not lay claim to anything as our right. We hold all things lightly. We're prepared to let them go if Jesus requires it. This applies to our homes, our possessions, our careers, our finances, our relationships, even our very life, as Jesus says. If Jesus is Lord, they are his anyway. As we think of our own lives in this context, let's just pause very briefly and ask the question, are there any no-go areas in our lives? We may happily sing, Jesus is Lord, But are there things that we hold dear, whether possessions or relationships, that are out of bounds to Jesus, where we say, so far and no further? Notice in this passage that Jesus does not trick people into discipleship on an easy ticket. Come to me and all your problems will be over. And I've I've actually heard something like that in gospel preaching of days gone by. But he says, before you commit yourself, before you go around declaring I am Lord, count the cost. He tells us that is what sensible builders do when, before they embark on a building project. Or a king when he assesses the ability of his army to prevail against superior forces. Most likely in re- reality, most of us were not faced with such a stark choice when we became Christians. I mentioned this when we looked at discipleship before. When I became a Christian, about to be baptised, nobody sat me down and said, I just need to tell you um, what this is going to cost you. Nobody did. And I guess that for most of us, the outworking of Christ's lordship has been gradual over long periods. And we've had repeated challenges to respond, perhaps like today. But many believers around the world are facing exactly these stark choices right now. To confess Jesus as Lord costs them everything. As I said, this is the second time in the Gospel where Jesus is recorded as using the cross, either taking it up or bearing it, as a mark of discipleship. The first time is in chapter 9, and it so happens that I spoke from this chapter, I think it was before Christmas, Um, And since it occurs again, I'll just repeat the small portion of that. Um, Jesus links self-denial with taking up our cross, a term that's not readily understood in our age and culture. But in first century Palestine, thousands of people were crucified by the Romans, criminals, Jews, and later Christians, with major roads lined with victims uh, on crosses. You get a flavour of it if you've seen the film Spartacus. 
quite old now, um, but that clearly showed the, the, the kind of extent of the, the, the Roman crucifixions. It was therefore a common sight to see a victim carry his cross to the place of execution. For them, it wasn't a matter of choice. It was imposed on them. But Jesus changes the metaphor here to a matter of choice. We choose to take it up. Unfortunately, in modern speech, you hear some people say when describing some misfortune that's, that, that's happened to them, um, that's befallen them, like a tiresome mother-in-law, this is just the cross I have to bear. But no, here it is a choice. It's something that will cost us in following Jesus. And of course, Jesus led the way um, in, by going to the cross, uh, by submitting to the cross. Whilst this is a word for all who would follow him, it's most likely that Jesus had persecution in mind, which would have been an inevitable outcome of taking the gospel of light into a dark world. There would be a clash of kingdoms. The call to take up your cross was in effect a call to die, firstly in life by denying yourself and maybe in death at the hands of the enemy of the cross. Now, let's turn to what Jesus says about family that sounds so harsh and uncharacteristic of Jesus, who urged us to love, not hate. He tells us to love one another, to love our neighbours as ourselves, and even to love our enemies. So surely we must love our family. Therefore, what's going on here? Let's put aside the word hate for a moment and ask the question, what do our family relationships have to do with discipleship? After all, families are God's design, his building blocks for the establishment and growth and well-being of a healthy society. But because of our fallen nature, not all have found family to be what God intended. But for most of us, our family will be, or has been, our primary source of human relationships, where we receive and give love, support, nurture, discipline, guidance, and take on family values and characteristics. Through all these, a loyalty develops that is the strongest of bonds. The relationships change, of course, as children grow older and in due time they leave the care and discipline of their parents and form families of their own. If we become a Christian in a believing family, then we can expect affirmation and support. If we become a Christian in a non-believing family, then we may face a range of responses from a kind of superficial affirmation which says, I'm glad you're into this because at least it keeps you off the streets through indifference to maybe hostility, especially if your family strongly practices another religion. Jesus is recognising that although family is God's gift to mankind, family ties, family bonds, family loyalties and especially family religion can be of the strongest hindrance to follow him. We have a little incident in, in Jesus' own life in Matthew 12, 46. It says this, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand to his disciples, he said, 
Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus, we assume, was brought up in a loving Jewish family. His mother and brothers were undoubtedly familiar with his teaching and maybe become uneasy. Um, and I'm speculating here, you understand. May have become uneasy about the nature, the radical nature of his teaching. And they may have said amongst themselves, um, we need to have a word with him. He is becoming an embarrassment. Jesus, knowing this, tells the crowd that the new family that God was establishing through faith in him takes priority over natural families who, as in this case, may be a hindrance. When families are deeply religious, rejection of the religion in favour of another one automatically is seen as a rejection of the family, even if this was not the intention of the person. On a relatively minor level, um, this can happen when a Christian family, uh, where, sorry, within a Christian family, when children decide to go perhaps to a different church from their parents' one, or change from being a, a Catholic to a Protestant, or vice versa. Uh, parents can feel hurt that their children are somehow rejecting their upbringing, and, there may be, and they may be communicate this hurt to their children. But the sense of rejection becomes severe and terribly painful when a major religion like Islam is involved. Perhaps the best way to illustrate this is to relate the experience of Nabil Qureshi, author of the book Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Some of you will have read the book. Um, raised a devout um, Muslim in the United States, in an incredibly loving family. Nabil grew up studying Islamic apologetics with his family and engaging Christians in religious discussions. After one such discussion with a Christian, the two became friends and began a years-long debate on the historical claims of Christianity and Islam. One evening, looking for a living word from God, he got out his Quran and his study Bible, and he put the two side by side. I'm reading the Quran first. He found nothing of the living God there. Then turning to the Bible, he became convinced that Jesus rose from the dead and was indeed God. And I'll just read you a little bit from, from the book. After midnight, one evening, still captivated by this newfound glory, I found these words in Matthew 10, 32 to 33. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. My heart sank. I had not even acknowledged Jesus to Jesus, let alone others. But to acknowledge him meant destroying my family. Could he really charge me to do such a thing? As if the living word of the Bible were in conversation with Jesus began responding to my heart, verse by verse. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. But how could this be? How could 
Jesus turn me against Ami and Abba. That's his mother and father. They are such wonderful people. Why would God do such a thing? Jesus answered in the next verse, anyone who loves their father is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It was not If my family, is it gone? Is it okay? I should need another hand, probably. Um, is it okay? That's no, okay. <laughs> it wasn't that Jesus was turning me against my parents. It was that if my family stood against God. I had to choose one or the other. God is obviously best, even if that caused me to turn against my family. But how? How could I bear the pain? He eventually did tell his parents, and it devastated them, uh, as he knew it would. And it was the most painful experience of his life. And he goes through quite a lot of detail in the book as to how he came to terms with that. But at the end, he concludes... All suffering is worth it to follow Jesus. He is amazing. Just as an aside, he talks about the difficulty of sharing the gospel with Muslims. He says, there are simply too many barriers for Muslim immigrants to understand Christians and the West by sheer circumstance. Only the exceptional blend of love, humility, hospitality and persistence can overcome these barriers and not enough people make the effort. I don't know if you noticed, but um, Nabil quoted a statement from Jesus that is very similar to the one in our passage. And his one comes from Matthew 10, 37. That will come up. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Our passage reads, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Um, as indicated earlier, um, I feel I'd rather, rather duck this one. And um, I feel, still feel a degree of unease reading it out in public. But it's there as part of the divinely inspired scripture. So it's God's word to us. I think literal haste, hatred has no part in Jesus' teaching. And as we said earlier, he commands his followers to love one another, love our neighbours and love our enemies. And Jesus demonstrated love for his family by, by, whilst dying on the cross in agony. He shows concern for his mother by asking John to take her uh, into his home as, her, as his mother. And he would have upheld the commandment to honour your father and mother. But there's no conflict here. Even if we choose Jesus over the wishes of our father and mother, there is no conflict here. Um, because um, if we choose Jesus uh, 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 over our parents, um, that we can still honour them by being concerned for their welfare and act lovingly towards them, particularly in the, for, to care for their needs in old age. So why the word hate? We keep coming back to it. Um, commentaries aren't a lot of help. Mine says hating can mean something like loving less. I would rather consider it 
um, a form of speech that overemphasizes for effect. For example, I might say, my feet are killing me. They're not literally killing me, otherwise I wouldn't be here now. But it gives you a clue as to the severity of the pain I'm feeling. Perhaps Jesus is overstating the case to emphasize the priority of loyalty to him over other relationships. Families, however loving, can be a stumbling block to us fully confessing Jesus. Even on a simple level, many of us may find it hard to witness to unbelieving family members. I'm thinking about the wider family. Do you find it difficult? I find it easy to witness or to talk to, about Jesus to complete strangers than I do my family. Sometimes it's because of a lack of opportunity, but when we do have a moment, the conversations never seem to give a natural opening for the gospel, and to raise the subject out of the blue seems inappropriate. But also, we may hold back because we don't want to offend them and damage the relationship and be rejected. But I ask myself, how can I hold back when so much is at stake? Am I more concerned to keep those relationships sweet than confess Jesus and his glorious gospel and potentially see them saved? Sadly, I think I am at times and I need to take Jesus' words to heart once again. And the last two verses we'll look at briefly, 34 and 35. If we do not follow Jesus wholeheartedly and give him first place in our lives, being prepared to lose everything, even our own lives, then Jesus said we will be like salt that has lost its saltiness. There will be little to choose between us and non-believers and we will not have the impact on our lost world that the, his disciples as his disciples we should have. So he said, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our half-hearted discipleship where we've chosen to blend in rather than live differently for you, where we have sought the things of this world rather than your kingdom, where we have put the approval of friends and family above testifying of your love and salvation. But we thank you that none of these things, even our worst failures, have lessened your love for us and that our sin and failure only draw your heart towards us and increase your grace available to us. Thank you that you are a God of new beginnings. Fill us again with your Holy Spirit that our lives may be a living testimony of your love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.